Amen. I'm so excited to be here together today as we continue to, to worship the Lord and do it by opening up the Word of God. And today's a special day for a few reasons. One is, uh, is this is Palm Sunday. The other is you actually got a really special treat today. You didn't realize it, but they left my mic on after I did the call to worship. So you got to hear me over the microphone. I'm sorry, by the way, that you got to hear that. But, you know, every once in a while, you get to hear a little bit of me singing. Uh, but today, I want to go ahead and read from Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read verse 17 as we finish our series on the law of God. Here's what verse 17 says. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. Now, go ahead and, and let's have a seat right now and try to get the image of your neighbor's donkey out of your mind as you do. Because I know you all covet your neighbor's donkey, don't you? But we're going to talk about that today. We're going to say, what is, this, what is this talking about in terms of coveting? But, but I want to set some things up for you by, by telling you a little bit of a story. And if you've been around here over the last few years, you've seen that, you know, it's getting nicer outside. The, 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 the weather is getting, you know, there's more sun. It's spring, which means one very important thing— it's baseball season, right? It's baseball season. And so this, this kicks off the official baseball season, which means for the next few months, you're going to hear a lot of stories about the baseball field. My family, we play a lot of baseball. We've got three kids playing right now. Jay's in Babe Ruth. Ella's playing 12U. And Asher, is, he's in T-ball. And I'm coaching a couple of those teams. And, and one of the teams I'm coaching, it's Asher's T-ball team. Now, if you didn't know this, the most exhausting thing you can do is try to coach four, five, and six-year-olds for an hour. Right? I mean, I, I could preach all day long, go home, and have way more energy than an hour of coaching t-ball. I tell you, it just drains you. But this week, we, we really, we kick things off, and, uh, and we did this, uh, the brave thing you do sooner or later, you say, okay, kids, we're going to bust out the bats. Now, the first few practices, it's only tennis balls, and you move to a little bit squishy balls, but then you, it gets really serious when you actually let them hold the bat. And it's a really cool thing. The way I coach is I try to get kids uh, confident away from the tee as soon as possible, right? And so you don't want that tee to be a crutch for them. And so when we, when we coach batting, what I do is I get all the kids in a circle. It takes about a half an hour, you know what I mean? Every, let's circle up, kids. I get them all in a circle. And then once they're circled up, we, we have one coach working with the, the player that we're throwing to. And then the other coach is in the middle just kind of gently throwing wiffle balls, so the kid can, can hit it, right? And so we get them positioned, we get their feet right, we get their hands right, we get them loaded, all of those things. And I give them four pitches and then I go to the next kid and then we just go around the circle a few times, right? And, and here's what usually happens the very first time a kid has a live pitch thrown at them. And most of them, this is literally the first time they've ever tried to hit a ball with a bat. So you get there and, and usually you're down on one knee and you just kind of gently toss it and, and first swing, miss. Okay, it's okay. You can do it. Come on, let's try. Next swing. Almost always. Miss. And so as the coach, you're kind of watching where they're swinging and you want them to succeed. And so now, okay, I'm, I'm locked in. I know where their bat's going to go and I'm trying to correct them. And, and so then the next pitch, usually, usually they'll hit it there, but, but oftentimes they'll, they'll miss it. 
So sometimes you get to that fourth pitch, and this is like where, where this is like the, the, the money pitch, right? You, as a coach, everything in you, you want to help that kid make contact. And so, so usually what happens is they do. You throw that pitch, and they make contact. And even if it's a foul ball, it's like the, the heavens open, the sun comes down, it's glory raining down, parents are on the side taking pictures, and their kid is already being signed up for all-stars, right? I mean, it's, it's exactly how it works. Once they make contact, you're like, you you did it. You, you hit the ball. It, and really quickly, really quickly, I'll gather them all together and say, look, you don't need the T. You, you don't need the T. We're going to use it in games. We're going to use it in practice. You're going to get lots of swings with the T. But I want those kids from the very beginning to know that they, they don't need the T. They can do it. I tell you that story because I, I think it applies, it lays right on top of what we're going to talk about today. Today, as we look at the 10th commandment, we're going to talk about coveting. Now, if you're in this room and you are a believer in Jesus, you're kind of like that t-baller that's hit the ball, even for the first time. I want you to see today that, that you, you need not covet. Because, because you have something, even better than hitting a, a, a wiffle ball that coaches, you have Christ. Now, I want to I just kind of lay it out. When we talk about coveting, we're going to see before too long that every one of us is guilty of this. If you're in Christ, if you've trusted Jesus, this is, this is something you battle with. We're going to end there today. If you're here today and you, you're still undecided about Jesus, I am so excited you're here today because I think you're going to get a, a vision, an insight into what it looks like to know who Christ is and to know what it is to be in him. But to do all this today, we, we've kind of got to build a little bit of a, 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 kind of a build an argument together. What I want to do with us over the next little bit of time is I want us to try to nail down what, what does the Bible mean when it talks about coveting? What is coveting? I also want us to see what it does to our soul. What does it look like internally for someone if they go through life having this, this wrong-directed desire, this, this strong desire for the things that you're not supposed to have? What, what happens internally in you? And then where I want to end is I want us to see what the real alternative is, the alternative we have in Christ, what that is. And so let's, let's jump in together. If you want to turn with me to, to Colossians 3, that's where we're going to start. We're going to jump around to a few passages today to, to kind of get a biblical understanding of coveting and how it works in the life of, of all of us. But here's where we're going to start. What is coveting? Well, in its most basic sense, coveting is, it's wrong worship. Co coveting is wrong worship. Worship. I mean, we just sang and it was wonderful singing with you, but, but let's talk about what we mean by coveting being wrong worship. Colossians 3, verse 5. The Apostle Paul, he's, he's writing to a church, to a, a group of people, kind of like us, in a certain city, and, and here's what he says to them. He says, put to death, put to death, this is how aggressive you have to be with it. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he lists out, not an exhaustive list, but, but some, some of the, the chief examples of what we find in ourselves that is earthly or that is part of our sinful nature. He says, he put to death these things. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, as in wrongly aimed passion, evil desire, and covetousness. 
And then he defines the word covetousness. He says, here's the definition, which is idolatry. He says, he says, this is, he says to covet, covetousness, it, it, is, it is idol worship. It's idolatry. And we, we talked about idol worship all the way back when, when we began this series. Idol worship in, in Israel's time, as they have just been rescued out of the land of Egypt, they have just been rescued out of a land that was saturated with idol worship. They prayed to one God for the harvest. They prayed to another God that they would be fertile, right? And that they would be able to reproduce. They prayed for another God for rain and for sun and for moon and for favor. They had all of these different gods, all of these different idols that they would pray to, that they would set their hope on. These gods would be their source of security. These gods would be their source of, of satisfaction, these gods would ultimately be their source of salvation. They worshipped at these idols. What, what, what this New Testament explains to us right here is that, that when we worship, when we covet, we are aiming our worship in, in the wrong direction. It, to covet here is the idea of having a, a desire that, that is insatiable. It's a desire for the world, to get the world, to get your hands on the things of the world. It it's also can be described as a, an inordinate love for the things of the world. It's a love that is it's, it's incredibly strong, not for the Lord, but, but for the earthly, temporal, even base things that, that are offered to us here in this, in this life. See, this... This 10th commandment, you shall not covet. You want to know what it does? It takes all those other external covenant, or all those other external commandments. Those commandments that say, do not murder. Well, you haven't murdered anyone today. Good job. Do not steal. You haven't stolen anything today. Good job. Do not commit adultery. Hopefully you haven't done that today. Good job. It takes all of those that might be seen as external and that might lead us to say, oh, I can pat myself on the back. I'm doing a pretty good job. I haven't killed anyone today. It moves it from action and it moves it internally to attitude. It says the inner posture of your heart toward the things of this world, you, you, you shall not have your desire set on the wrong things. Desire in Scripture is not a bad thing. Even strong desire is not a bad thing. Where strong desire becomes evil is when, it, when it's aimed at the wrong thing. So, so we see this here, we see this, this, this going beneath the surface and, and forcing us to ask the question, where is my affection? And where is my allegiance? You know, the, the classic pop culture uh, picture of coveting, it, 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 most of us in this room, I imagine, are familiar with it. In my mind, at least, the clearest picture is, is from the movies The Lord of the Rings, 
If you've watched them or if you read the books, right, you, you have this, this character, his name's Smeagol, early on, and he looks like a, a somewhat normal hobbit. Now, I say somewhat normal because hobbits are like this tall and they're kind of funny little creatures, but in terms of all the rest of him, he looked like a somewhat normal creature, but he ends up having his heart set on one thing above everything else, this one ring that will rule with power all the others. And you know what this ring does to him? It, it, it consumes him. In time, he is pushed away or murdered all of those who are close to him. In time, he becomes completely isolated. In time, his physical appearance, it, it becomes degraded. It becomes vile. It becomes, it becomes something that is a bit of a monstrosity as you, as you look at it. This is, this is an image that, that most of us are used to, but this is, this is actually what the scripture is talking about here. To have a strong desire for something of this world that, that's not ours. The, the, the golem or Smeagol, he even, he even has a term for it. What's the, what's the term? He says, my precious. My precious. Where's your, where's your worship aimed at today? What is it that that if we were to be able to peel back the layers of, of, of skin and bone and get into the very core, into your spirit and into your soul, what is it that you would say is my precious? You see, this is idolatry when we covet. In fact, if we go a little bit deeper here, we see that, that according to Jesus, when you covet, you lack love for God. Over the course of these weeks, as we've looked at the Ten Commandments, we looked at the first four, which describe how to love God. And then the next six, they describe how to love your fellow man, how to love your neighbor. And then Jesus, when he's questioned, what is the greatest of the commandments? You remember his answer? We've looked at this a few times already in the series. Matthew 22, verse 37. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. You see, Jesus, he takes the commandments and he says, you really want to boil them down. The greatest commandment is to love God. In, in fact, if we go back to Exodus 20, look at verses 1 through 3, we, we see this is really, this is the first commandment in a nutshell. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3, it says, And God spoke all these things, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. These Ten Commandments, they're actually, they're, they're genius. You realize the very first commandment says, You shall have no other gods before me. We talked about that 11 weeks ago, I think, we said we should love God first and foremost. Our greatest affection and our greatest allegiance should be for our Lord, the God. But, but then, then when we get all the way to the end, we get to the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment that's actually, it falls under the table that is about commandments and how to love your neighbor. You realize baked into it is the commandment to love God first. See, see when you covet you're setting your desire on something. You're setting your affection on something. Oftentimes, we even set our allegiance upon something instead of the one true God. You, you see, these commandments are like bookends. 
They're like bookends so that we have to hold this volume of the Ten Commandments. And on both sides, we're holding on to commandments that remind us that God is God. That God is first. That he is to be our chief and highest affection and allegiance. This is what this commandment does. And when we covet, we don't just break the commandment against neighbor. We actually break the first commandment as well. When you covet, you lack love for God. But, but you also lack love for neighbor when you covet. When you covet, you also lack love for neighbor. Matthew twenty two thirty nine. 39, Jesus continues. He says, and the second of the great commandments is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But you can't do that. You can't do that if you're looking at what your neighbor has, if you're looking at their life situation, and you're, you're desiring to have the things they have. See, see when, you, when you do this, when you, when you say, I am coveting, you are actually willing at that moment to devalue the relationship for the sake of your desire. You can't love your neighbor and devalue the relationship at the same time. It's like an ancient war where the two, the two armies, they come out to the battlefield ready for battle and the, these vast armies, they all, they're arrayed in all of their armor and then oftentimes you would have two champions come out to the very center of the battlefield and these two champions, instead of having the entirety of the army's battle, these two champions would battle. Winner takes all. Listen, here's what's happening when coveting is going on in your life. You cannot say, I love my neighbor and at the same time have have covetous heart and covetous mind toward, toward their life. They're going to battle until one wins. When you covet, you lack love for your neighbor. Now Moses, in, in Exodus 20, he describes some of the ways that, that Israel was tempted to covet. I think these parallel with the ways that we're tempted to covet. Look at this verse again. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Do you like your house? I hope you like your house. I found, though, that there's always a nicer house, isn't there? There's always someone else's house that you visit, and you say, man, if only, if only I had that. If only I had that in my house. It continues. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Well, what does it mean to covet your neighbor's wife or your spouse? Well, obviously, there's a, a lustful intent here, but even beyond that, you ever, you ever heard someone's spouse talk about their, their husband or wife in a way that you said, man, I, I, really wish, I really wish my spouse would do that for me. I wish, really wish they would talk about me that way. Or, or maybe you're single and, and, and you want to be married. And you look at those who are married. You look at the gift that God's given, and there's a a covetous desire. It goes on, it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's servants. Now, we don't live in a world, at least in, in our culture, where we have servants, but what we do have is we have jobs, places of employment, sometimes management positions, sometimes people that report to us, and it's really easy in, in the job place to be like, I really wish I had their position. I really wish I had their their prestige. I really wish I had th their paycheck. And it's really easy to find ourselves without even realizing it, coveting our neighbors, even their employment. And then it says ox or donkey, and then it says, or anything else that is your neighbor's. 
Now, livestock in that day, they were methods of transportation. They were tools. They were part of their agrarian culture. For us, what does that look like today? You shall not covet your neighbor's car. You ever looked at someone's car? <laughs> Be honest. So, man, I really wish my car was a lot like that. Or, or what about, you ever seen someone pull out their cell phone and they got the all-new iPhone 85 or whatever it's at now? You're like, whoa, how, how do they, I really wish I had that thing. Now, sometimes it's clothing or, or shoes or, or, or whatever it is. What are the externals that you see in the lives of the people around you that you find your heart longing for? You find your desire ends up being set upon them. You can't love your neighbor and covet what they have at the same time. In fact, the root of, of all of these other sins against neighbors that we've looked at, at the very root of it, we're going to find some form of coveting. Now you think about it. Obviously, adultery, you're coveting a wife. Obviously, stealing, you're coveting what they have. But we learned about bearing false witness. You're coveting position, and you're willing to devalue the relationship and even the truth. Even murder. In the moment of murder, oftentimes what's happening is there's, there's something that you feel like you want that you have to take from that life. See, coveting is a... It, it's, it's this worship that is directed in the wrong direction. It's aimed. Instead of being aimed at the one true God, it's aimed at the things of the earth. But, but here's the deal. You, you need not covet. You need not covet. Why? Be, because you now have Christ. In Christ, your worship, it's been redirected. Jesus makes it so he says, no longer are you bound to the things of the world for your security. No longer are you bound to the things of the world for your satisfaction or your salvation. He says, now I am those things for you. And so now you can direct your worship in the right way. You need not covet. You now have Christ. But, but listen, because coveting is wrong worship, whenever we worship incorrectly, something happens inside of us also. Coveting is not just wrong worship. Coveting is also, it, it's wicked corruption. Co coveting does something internally. L let me show you what I mean. A similar passage to the Colossians 3-5 passages is <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 3. I, I want you to see how, how corrupting coveting is inside of you. Verses 3 through 5, it says, But sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. This shouldn't, should not describe you at all. Verse four, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that anyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, let's take a poll. If I were to ask you to rank on a bad behavior scale, how, how high on that scale is sexual immorality? How high on that scale would you say it would be for, for someone to be unfaithful to their spouse? I think most of us would rank it pretty high. That, that, that's pretty hurtful. 
But, but, but if I were to come say, what about, what about having like coveting desires in your heart? How high would you rank that on the scale? I am guessing, before reading this passage, most of us would say, well, it's probably not quite, maybe, maybe it's like 50% mark. You know, it's bad, it's internal, but you know, it's not, it's not like you're you know, being unfaithful in marriage. But, but do you see what this passage of Scripture does? You see this passage of Scripture, it actually equates sexual immorality with the same exact level as having this misguided, misdirected desires festering inside of you. In fact, it, it even equates it to the same level as says, those who do these things, including having a, a coveting heart, says they will be excluded from the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that, that, that's how serious this is. Why, why do we look at it like this? Because I want you to see that, that a coveting heart, if we were to take an x-ray, a spiritual x-ray, and, and put you behind it, and you're standing behind this x-ray, if you have a coveting heart, you will see that it's like a spiritual cancer, that it spreads aggressively throughout the entirety of your soul. It, it corrupts you through and through. That, that's what this passage is saying. Paul writes about the same thing. In Romans 7, verse 7, he says, What then shall we say? Is the law, the law of God, sinful? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known my sin. We looked about this weeks ago. He says, For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. See, this, this final commandment, it's like the nail in the coffin. It's like the nail in the coffin for every one of us because now there's not one of us that can say, I have externally obeyed all of the laws of God. Even if you try to say that, this law, the 10th commandment, it serves as that x-ray that shows the evil desires of our hearts. It shows that we, all of us outside of Christ, listen, all of us outside of Christ, we have this wickedly corrupted and defiled soul and there's nothing you and I can do to heal it. There's no self-cure plan. There's no way to, 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 to be better, to do good or, or to try harder. There's nothing we can do. In fact, if you back up to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4, in a similar vein, Paul uses this line in verse 21. He says, assuming that you have heard about him. Who's him? But Jesus. Let's just wade through this for a minute. Here's what he is saying about the, the spiritual life of someone who is in Christ. He says, assuming that you have heard about Jesus and were taught in Jesus as the truth is in Jesus. He says, I'm going to assume for a moment that you know Jesus. If that's the case, here's what your life should look like. Verse 22, he says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former man manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. If, if you've got your Bible open, underline those words, deceitful desires. What are deceitful desires? It's a coveting heart. It's a heart that says, I'm gonna, if I get my hands on this, I'll finally be happy. And then it realizes that was a lie through and through. 
Verse 23, instead, or and, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Let, let God change the way you think, verse 24, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Here's what he says. He says, I want to assume for a moment that you have heard about Jesus. But I found it's really dangerous to assume that of people. The reality is when a church gathers like this, uh, if I were to sit down with every person one-on-one, I've been surprised before how my assumptions sometimes are incorrect. Sometimes we hear about Jesus and, and I'll ask someone, what does it mean to be a Christian? And they'll say something like this, well, you know, I go to church and I do pretty good things, so, so I'm a Christian. Other times I'll say, well, you, you come to church, to tell me, what's your faith like? Well, you know, my parents, they always went to church, and so I go to church because my, my parents have always gone to church, and so, so I'm a Christian, right? But if those ring true in your mind, I, I want to tell you, that's not hearing about Jesus, See, see, to hear about Jesus is to hear the reality of, of how corrupt we are, is to have that x-ray go in front of us and to see that we are helpless and we are hopeless in our sin. Even if we check all the boxes externally, internally, all of us, we have this corrupt, wicked, coveting heart. And there's only one way it can be healed, and it's not come to church It's not trying harder. It's not doing more good stuff. The only way that internal corruption can be be made whole and can be healed is by trusting. Trusting that Jesus, he wasn't corrupt at all. Trusting that he lived a perfect, sinless life and that he, he willingly laid it down when he died on that cross. Paying the price for all of our sin was buried and resurrected so that everyone who believes in him, just what it says right here, puts on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. To put on the new self, is it only happens through trust in Jesus. So, so assuming that you've heard about Jesus, have you? Have you heard about Jesus and and who he truly is and what he's done? See, if that's true of you, then in Christ, listen, in Christ, your wicked corruption has been removed. In Christ, that that internal wicked corruption, if we were to put that x-ray in front of you now, you'd find that it has been healed. But but that only happens in Christ. What this means for you today is you need not covet because you now have Christ. Do you have Christ? See, See, coveting, it's wrong worship. But Christ redirects our worship. Coveting, it's wicked corruption. But Christ, he removes that. But, but let's keep going. Not only... Not only does he remove it, but but now he gives us an alternative. You see, coveting is at war with your contentment. Coveting is at war with your contentment. If you're in Christ, you've been given contentment, but but it doesn't mean that coveting has backed off. Coveting is at war with your contentment. See, here's what coveting says. Coveting says, I need more. 
I need a bigger house, I need a better car, I need a a better job, Uh, whatever it is, I need more. But here's what Christ says. Christ says, you have what matters most. You you have what matters most. And and that leads to to living in contentment. 1 Timothy gets at this. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verses 6 through 10, it begins with this. It It says, but godliness with contentment godliness you've put on christ with contentment being content in christ is great gain verse 7 for we brought nothing into the world and cannot take anything out of the world but if we have food and clothing with these we will be content verse 9 but those who desire to be rich that those who covet those who have this this insatiable desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. The desire just adds upon desire that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know what coveting says? Coveting says, I will be happy if I have blank. What is that blank for you? What is the thing in your life that you find yourself searching the internet for in your free time? What is that thing that your, your emotion and your thoughts are all directed at? I will be happy if I have, Exodus says, a, a house or a spouse. It leads into thinking about a paycheck or material things. What is it for you that you will be happy with? Now, I know for me, when I find my heart is aimed at the wrong thing, I can rationalize it with the best of them. I can make excuses and explain myself away and say, you know what, here's why I deserve this because I do all these other things. And in my mind and in my heart, somewhere along the line, there's this switch that instead of saying, because I have Christ, I have happiness. And now I say, I will be happy if I finally have this. See, this war, it's subtle. I've heard it said that coveting is a sin that wears a cloak. It's in disguise. I would would posture to you that covetousness, it's an enemy spy in our midst and it's working to sabotage your well-being. The coveting desires that work inside of you, they work overtime, not for your good, but to destroy you. I mean, let's be honest. When you get that thing that you finally want, how long does it last until you want something else? A couple days? Maybe a couple weeks, maybe a few months, if that. See, it never does satisfy. In fact, Paul here in 1 Timothy, uh, he says, here's what it leads to. It leads to ruin. It, It leads to destruction. These are terms of tragedy where your life is in pieces all around you because you, your desire has been aimed at the wrong thing. He says that it leads people to wander from the faith when you have wrong desires. You know what that means? 
means that when you, when you harbor and when you, when you foster covetous desires inside of your heart, when you don't repent of them and when you don't keep them in check, it actually, it postures you on a path where you are little by little walking away from Jesus. It says ultimately they, it leads you to pierce yourself with many pangs. Coveting is not working for your benefit. Your desires that you have in your heart for the things of the world, you might think they're going to bring all the goodness that you want, but at the end of the day, he says they're a snare and they're a trap. He's warning us. He's warning us that, that you are in the middle of a war. It is a war between your, your desires that covet and a war between your contentment in Christ. Let me ask you, what's winning the war in your heart right now? What's winning that war? In fact, I, I don't want to just ask you that question. I want to take a moment right now. I have a handful of questions I want you to ask yourself. Maybe, maybe you just want to close your eyes for, for the next moment and, and just between you and the Lord, try to answer these questions from an honest and sincere heart before him. These questions, I think, will help you determine who is winning the war in your heart, your coveting desires or your contentment in Christ. Let me ask you a few questions. Here, here's the first one. Are your thoughts primarily focused on things of the world or things of the Lord? With what happens in your mind when, where no one else can see? When you have a free moment to think about whatever it is you want, are you thinking about the scripture? Are you thinking about truth? Are you thinking about the gospel? Or are you thinking about, really, things that might not matter so much? How about your... How about your efforts and energies? Is all of your time primarily focused on worldly endeavors? Do you find it's hard to squeeze in church every other weekend? you find that you don't really have room to serve the Lord or, or to, to do the things of like sharing your faith and, and, and doing things in the community that actually show how awesome Jesus is? Does, does the things of God, do they get crowded out by the things of the world, by your, your entertainment? and your hobbies, and the things that you like to do around the house? Are your efforts and energies, are they primarily focused on the things of the world? How about your speech? If I were to, if I were to turn the record button on your phone and just put it in your pocket, and, and you could just have it play for the next week, and then we were to come and sit down and, and listen to everything you say over the course of the week, is your speech, is, is it full of things that talk about the things of earth? Uh, guilty. Let me tell you about baseball. <laughs> let, let, let me tell you about all these other things. Or, or would I hear you talking about the Scripture? Would I hear you, you praying out loud with your family and over your family? Would I hear words coming out of your mouth to talk about Christ to, to someone who's yet to trust him? How, how do your words reveal who's winning the war in your heart 
between contentment in Christ and a coveting desire. Now, I'll go back to a question I asked you a moment ago. If only I had blank, I'd be happy. Do you, do you have, do you have a, a thought, an image, a picture that fills your mind the moment we say that? Or are you able to sincerely say, huh, I have Christ. I have Christ. And this is a real war. And here's the deal. It's a war, but, but in this war, you have received contentment in Christ. You have received contentment in Christ because you have been given more in Christ than maybe you realize. Can I just remind you a little bit of what you've received in Christ? Ephesians chapter 1, verse, verse 3. It says this, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You, it says blessed over and over. But, but in this, this says that in Christ, God the Father has given you every spiritual blessing that exists. And they're being held for you in the heavenly places. In, in fact, Ephesians 1, Paul continues. The, the Greek's kind of a mess because it's just one big sentence. It's like he gets so excited, he starts writing all of the blessings, not even an exhaustive list, but he just starts writing blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing that you have if you are in Christ. Can I, can I just share a few of them with you? This is just kind of a rough cut list. He goes on, he says that your blessings include you have been chosen by God to be holy and blameless. If you're in Christ, when the Father looks at you, he sees someone who is holy and blameless. You have been set aside as pure for his purposes. It says that you have been predestined to be adopted as his child. He looks at you if you're in Christ and he sees someone, he says, that's my boy, that's my girl, that's my child. In contrast to a later chapter with those outside of Christ are children of wrath. You're not a children of wrath, you're a child of God. It says that you've been redeemed through Jesus' death and resurrection. To be redeemed means that you were a slave to sin, and when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price to rescue you out of slavery and to make you his. You're no longer a slave to sin. This is part of your blessing in Christ. It, it continues, it says, your sins have been forgiven, all of them. All of them. It says that you have been lavished with the riches of God's grace. Lavished. It's a luxurious word. It's the image of, of expensive oil or perfume being, being poured out upon you. And, and instead of being oil or perfume, it's, it's the riches of God's grace that have been poured out upon you. God's grace, what is that? It's God's choice to show you favor. The riches of God's favor have been poured out upon you. 
says you've been told the mystery of God's will in saving you. It's a mystery to those outside of Christ. But you now, when you look at a cross, you, you, you understand how you have been rescued in a way that is foolishness to the world and it's everything to you. It says that you have obtained an inheritance which is eternity with God forever. One more, it says that the moment you heard and believed the word of truth, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, saved by the Son, adopted by the Father, and sealed by the Spirit. You are now united into the triune God under his care and part of his family. Let me ask you, What, what is it that you would say, if only I had blank, I'd be happy? I want you to take that and just kind of picture holding it on one end of a scale. And then I want you to take all of the blessings that you have been given in Christ and I want to put, you, put it on the other end. How do those compare? See, see, see it's no contest. What you have in Christ far outweighs anything that this world could offer you. Which means that you have contentment in Christ. You need not covet. Brother and sister in Christ, you need not covet. You now have Christ. See, see coveting, it's, it's, it's wrong worship. But in Christ, it's been redirected. Coveting is wicked corruption. In Christ, it's been removed. Coveting is at war with your contentment, but you have received contentment in Christ. This is your life now. No, this reminds me, a few weeks ago, I was in Kansas City, and, and I stopped over at this cafe, and I uh, had good reviews. I had really great coffee. While I was there, I stopped in, and I, I went to use the bathroom, and it was kind of one of these artsy coffee shops, really kind of artsy, and, and I walked in there, and in the bathroom, right where you're going to the bathroom, there, there's a really kind of awkward photo, almost as awkward as taking a photo in the bathroom, which is what I did, but I want, I want to show you this photo. Uh, <laughs> here's what the photo says. It says, I mean, this literally, right in front of your face. Relax, you are the universe. And then it has an eyeball watching you as you're going to the bathroom. Okay. Originally, I took this photo because I thought it was ridiculous. I, I mean, this is, this is a secular worldview. You are the universe, right? So relax. I, I was thinking, if you're the universe, there's not much relaxing. <laughs> You've got a lot of responsibility, right? But, but the more I've thought about it, here's what I think. I think most of us, we wouldn't say we are the universe. I, I think we would just say that when we covet, we're the center of the universe. When we covet, we act like the universe revolves around us. Of course I can chase my desire over here. Of course I can do whatever I want. I mean, I deserve it. Because I'm the center of the universe. What we've seen is in that moment, you know what we're doing? We're, we're making an idol of ourself. We're directing our worship at ourselves. It's, it's corrupting us wickedly from the inside out. And it is not going to lead to contentment at all. But the alternative is to turn your eyes to Jesus. Let's take this moment right now and do exactly that. I'm going to pray for us all in just a moment. But, but in this moment of maybe 30 seconds of silence, I want you to go to the Lord.
I want you to go to him recognizing all that he has done for you in Christ. And I want you to even take whatever your fill in the blank is. If only I had blank, I'd be happy. I want you to take that to him. And I want you to even repent. God, I'm sorry for fostering a coveting heart. God, I'm going to turn away from chasing and loving the things of the world. I'm going to turn toward you. I know in this moment as you do that, you will be reminded of the contentment you have in Christ. Take this moment and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to you as your children who have been redeemed by Jesus and adopted by you and who are now sealed with your spirit and who anticipate that day when we receive the inheritance of eternity in glory with you. God, thank you so much. God, I pray that these truths would overwhelm every one of our hearts and every one of our minds to such a degree that that coveting would would actually become laughable. God, I pray that you would solidify in us the truth of, of who we are and what we have in Christ. You would solidify it so well that when the things of this world, when they start to draw us away, when they start to steal our affection or our allegiance, I pray that we would quickly turn back to you, recognizing that you give us grace and you give us mercy over and over again. God, I pray ultimately as we become a people who are more and more content with Jesus, I pray that it would, it would, it would bless our families as families grow stronger in Christ. Father, I pray as we become a people who are more and more content with Jesus, it would bless our community. As our community sees us as people who are generous and loving and giving and welcoming. And ultimately, Lord, I pray you would use, you would use the contentment we have in Christ as part of, part of what changes this world. And ultimately, as part of what brings you glory as the God who, who, who has cared for us so well. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.